So we are starting a new series, and John um, let me kick it off since he's been with uh, the Timothy crew, so hopefully I can get through it here today. Um, But if you turn to John 17, this is where the scripture um, comes from, that we are in the world but not of it, and Jesus' exhortation to us. And if you want to turn to John 17, verse 14. We'll read this scripture together. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should uh, take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So in this series, we're going to be looking at how do we practically do this? When Jesus says we are called to be in the world, but not of the world, what does it actually look like on the day-to-day basis for you and I? Because Jesus says, just like the Father sent him out on mission, and his mission was to be the Savior of the world, um, so too has he sent all of us out on mission. Now our mission isn't to be the Messiah, but our mission is to serve Christ and be his body here on earth. And so how do we practically live this out? And sometimes this, I think, can seem vague or almost intimidating of, you know, do I have to go to Africa to to serve God or do I have to be a a missionary to serve Christ? But I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And this is one of the most um, comforting scriptures really I think I've had in my life. Um, through all different seasons. And this applies to you, whether you're a new believer, whether you're an old believer, whether you're an elder, whether you're a, a new Christian. In Ephesians 2.10, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that in this season in your life, God has created good works for you to walk in. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're an athletic director, a teacher, um, a stay-at-home mom. No matter what season you find yourself in, God um, has ordained works for you to walk in that would glorify him. And I know for me, one of the times this was most encouraging to me is when I was battling a lot of physical issues where I couldn't do a lot of things I would normally do. I couldn't be as active or as productive as I had been my whole life. And sometimes... I didn't do a whole lot outside of resting. And even in those days, I knew that there is a plan. My sickness didn't take God off guard, that my sickness didn't derail God's plan for my life. But there was works before the foundation of the world was even created that God um, had laid out for me to walk in in the gifts that he'd given me. So one, um, don't overanalyze it and don't overcomplicate it. God is doing a work in your life and trust that he's at work. And are we aware to respond to what he's doing in each one of our lives? So I want to turn to Daniel chapter 1, and this is where our uh, series is going to be based out of, is the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now when Dan, or, uh, John first told me you were doing this, I always think of Veggie Tales. if you guys have seen the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but uh, with the bunny and all that good stuff. Um, but this is a really powerful story if, if we take a second to really look at what's going on. And to give you guys a quick backstory is um, 
the Israelites are in captivity. They're in Babylon. And the way they got there is way back in the book of Judges, Israel didn't have a king. That God had led them into the promised land. He delivered them out of Egypt through Moses. And they find themselves entering into the promised land. um, But they don't have a king. And if you remember in that scripture, why did Israel want a king? And the phrase says, because they wanted to be like the other nations. And so in other words, they were in the world and they wanted to be of the world. They wanted to be like the rest of the world because it's uncomfortable to be different. And to them, not having a specific king felt chaotic and they didn't want to rely just on God. They wanted to rely on a man. And so over time, God finally grants them their request of having a king. And it doesn't go well for him. And God told him it wasn't going to go well for him. And Saul ends up falling away from the Lord. And then here comes David, the next king. And then he has some mistakes and he does okay. And then Solomon comes up, the wisest man um, to walk the earth. And then he ends up turning away from God as well. And as he sins, God ends up splitting the kingdom of Israel into two parts, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is overtaken by Assyria, Um, from their lack of repentance. And then all that's left is a southern kingdom. And finally, the southern kingdom will not repent either. And God brings Babylon to judge them. And And Babylon takes a lot of the Israelites captive and brings them back to Babylon. So that's where we find Daniel, is Daniel is in a very corrupt society. I know for us sometimes in our society, it can feel like we're getting pretty corrupt. Um, Morality is declining. All sorts of crazy things are being taught to the next generation. And it can kind of feel like, man, this is overwhelming. Where would we even start in making an impact in the United States of America? But I can guarantee you that Babylon was worse and a lot of what was going on um, than what's going on here in our country. Not that we shouldn't be alarmed at some of the things that are going on in our country. But ultimately, Daniel was faced with a task that seemed insurmountable. How is he supposed to impact this nation of Babylon? But what, the reason why I wanted to share this precluding story of where we're at in the book of Daniel is it's really important to realize God has certain time limits um, for people to respond to his gospel. And this is seen first really in the book of Genesis with the story of Noah. And God tells Noah, you're gonna have 120 years until I judge um, the world. And he tells Noah, this is the 120 year time limit. And from that time, Noah started building the ark. Now, we don't know exactly um, what Noah did during that time, except he built the ark. But two, I think he was probably preaching, probably telling people, you know, there's judgments coming. That's why I'm building this ark. You guys should get ready for it. But how many people in the world during that time took heed to what Noah was saying? Nobody, just Noah and his family. Those are the only people that ended up on the ark and everyone else continued to live their own lives and they were in the world and they were of the world and all of a sudden judgment came and it was too late. That's exactly what happened to Israel with Babylon is God was telling them he's super patient. This didn't happen overnight, but for hundreds and hundreds of years, God was warning them through his word and through his prophets, you need to change, you need to repent. And they wouldn't do it. And eventually that time limit was up and Babylon came to judge Israel. But this is true for us too. And if you turn to second Peter, sorry, I told you to turn to Daniel. I missed one. If you turn to second Peter, This is exactly what Jesus is doing. There's a time where Jesus is coming back to establish his new kingdom, to bring us into the promised land. But we also have a time limit. 
And um, one of the reasons Sarah and I actually were back earlier than, than we expected to be in Scotts Bluff was to attend um, Alice and Lacey or McGuffey, um, her, her funeral. And I don't know how many of you were able to come to that, um, but she was a good family friend of ours. And, you know, she passed away in her early 30s that we don't always know um, what our time limit looks like. And we may feel like we have a lot of time. We may feel like we have a short time, but we never know whether Christ is gonna return like a thief in the night or whether our time limit's up, that each one of us is responsible for the time that God has given us and for how we will steward that time. In 2 Peter 3, verse 8, he says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So part of being in the world and not of it is realizing this isn't our home. Just like Daniel realized Babylon is not his home, in a way, we're in Babylon. We're in a fallen world. We're in a sinful world. We're in a world that's not going to be perfect. We're going to be in a world, if you read the timeline of Scripture, that's going to get increasingly evil until Christ's return. And so what do we do while we're here? We should live in godliness, live in holiness, but actually be preparing for eternal life. Because luckily for us, it's not always going to be like this. But there is going to come a time where there is no mourning, there is no crying, there is no more sin, and Christ truly does establish his new kingdom. So now that we've, we've built kind of this expectation of why is this important to be in the world and not of the world, because just like Noah, there's gonna come a time where God's allotted time is over. And just like Israel, there's gonna come a time where our allotted time is over. And will the church be ready? Will the church be in the world and not of the world? Or will the church be in the world and of the world and end up being judged with the world? So if you turn to Daniel, we're going to see a practical example of how did Daniel do this in the nation of Babylon. And the first three or four verses just talk about how God had given um, Judah over to Babylon in judgment. And now they've taken these captives into the city. So if you turn to verse three of chapter one, he says this. Then the king instructed Asphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants um, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick understanding, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily provision for the king of the king's delicacies and the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among the sons of Judah, and we're going to find our, in all these names, they, they've listed twice, but it's, it's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three guys that we are going to be studying. Now what we're going to find is Daniel is going to be a man of the word. Number one is he's a man of the word and that's how he is going to impact Babylon. Number two, he's a humble man. 
And through his humility, he is gonna impact Babylon. And number three, we're gonna see the example of Christ in the story of Daniel that we too can be an example in the city that we live in. But what's interesting to me when you look at this, not only is Daniel in Babylon, but Daniel's now in the inner circle of King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you've ever studied Babylon or know much about Babylon, Babylon was a very wicked place. This was a a brutal group of people. It wasn't um, a nice place to be in. And not only that, but King Nebuchadnezzar was a leader. He was the most ruthless of all of them. And now all of a sudden, Daniel's not only in Babylon, but he's in the inner circle of one of the most wicked rulers in the world. So you talk about being in the world and the pressures of the world coming in Daniel. He's in one of the most pressured positions you could imagine. And in verse eight, it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord for the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. So I, what I find very interesting about this scripture, I don't know if you guys ever thought about this, but out of all the immorality Daniel could address, why do you feel like he addressed eating vegetables or eating meat? You know, he could be addressing idolatry. He could be addressing sexual immorality. He could be addressing taking advantage of the poor, killing other people to take their possessions. But why is it that we find in Daniel here that he draws a line of saying, I'm not going to eat your meat and I'm only going to eat vegetables. Well, if you turn to Leviticus, I think we can find our answer there. Leviticus 11.45. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. Um, So you either got to turn there or take my word for it. But Leviticus chapter 11 is all about the food laws of Israel. So if you want a really interesting dynamic read, you can read all Leviticus 11. It'll tell you all the things Israel could or couldn't eat. But when you get to verse 45, God says why. He kind of gives the why of this law. Why was he having Israel eat differently? In verse 45, he says, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. And this word holy in a, lot of, in a lot of ways could also just be translated separate. I am separate from the world. I am different. And this physical law that God had given Israel wasn't about whether vegetables were healthier or pork was healthier or beef was healthier. That's not what he was really concerned about. But this was going to be a distinction that when people saw Israel eating differently, it was a physical representation that they were the group of people that God had delivered from Egypt. And so one way that people who didn't maybe even know an Israelite personally, one way they could tell that this person was a Jew was by the way they ate. It was a physical representation of saying, my God is Yahweh, my God is the God of Israel, and I am separate, I am different 
than the other nations. And when you look at Daniel and Babylon, how did the Jews practice their religion? It was through the temple, right? Through the priests, through the high priests, through sacrifices. Well, now the temples have been destroyed in Israel and now they're back in Babylon and they don't have any of those things. All the avenues they had used their whole life to serve God and worship God were all taken from them. But what Daniel does, he realizes, you know, I can't serve God or worship God in maybe all the ways I'm accustomed to, but I can put my faith in his word and a very small commandment. And that commandment was, don't get defiled by the pagan food. Don't eat food offered to idols, which was another thing that Nebuchadnezzar and his men were doing. And so Daniel took this very small leap of faith of just thinking to himself, how can I serve God? And the one way he thought of here was I can put my faith in what God said in Leviticus. I don't need the um, temple to do that. I don't need the high priest, but I can make a choice for myself and put faith in God that he'll sustain me if I put my faith in his word. And it seems like such a small minuscule thing, but this is the tip of the iceberg. The very first thing Daniel does and eventually Nebuchadnezzar, the most evil king in the world admits that the God of Israel is the one true God. And it started by this little act of faith of standing on the truth of God. And so for you and I, what are the little acts of faith you can stand on from the word just in your everyday life that you may think don't mean hardly anything, but yet in our culture, there is so much pressure from the world for you to adopt their worldview, for you to adopt their way of thinking, for you to adopt all the habits and rituals that they do. And when we push back on those and just put faith in God's word, man, it kind of surprises them. And we see here that it also surprised the eunuch that he's saying, well, Daniel, if you guys don't eat meat and all you do is eat vegetables, you're gonna get skinny and you're gonna get weak and and you're gonna look way um, worse than all the other men and I'm gonna get in trouble and you guys are gonna get in trouble. And see, again, this is very similar to us in the fact that the world all the time is saying, well, you know, if you, man, if you're stressed out and you don't self-medicate, man, you're going to have a mental breakdown. Or if you, um, if you spend all your time serving others and putting others before yourself, man, your life's going to be miserable. If you don't save all your money to have an awesome retirement and travel the world and instead you give to missions, oh man, you know, you're just, you're not going to have a good life. And the world is pushing these things that if you do, you need to do what we do. And if you don't do what we do, you're gonna have a worse life. You're gonna be wanting. And ultimately you're gonna be the ones who are depressed and missed out. But what Daniel says, he says, no, we don't need the things of the the world. But if we would put our faith in God's word, we would be content and that would be sufficient for us. So in verse 15, Daniel continues on and says, at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies, meaning they looked healthier than the other guys. Thus, the steward took, st- took away their portion of delicacies and the wine which they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So we see that Daniel took this stance and not only did he take this stance, but God blessed him. And for you and I, sometimes it's scary to put our faith in the word of God because it doesn't seem practical. It seems like if I do this, it doesn't seem to maybe have a lot of practical wisdom. I may look stupid. I may look foolish. I might get made fun of. People might not like me. And as a result, we just don't do it. But Daniel had a lot to lose here. 
If he didn't show up looking healthy before the king, he could die. And not only could he die, but this eunuch who allowed him to do it, he could die because he wasn't doing his job. But in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a lot on the line, Daniel still put his faith in God's word. And not only did he trust in Leviticus and what God had said, but I want you to turn to Jeremiah um, 25. And De- Jeremiah was a um, contemporary in some ways of Daniel. Um, he would have been quite a bit older and prophesied a- a- as a younger man. But this is a scripture that Daniel would have known. Um, and if we go to uh, Jeremiah 25, verse three, this is something that Jeremiah had said to Israel before they went into captivity. This was basically their heads up that judgment was coming. And this was a scripture that Daniel would have known as he was going to Babylon. Verse three, he says, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. Have you ever done that? Or has someone ever done that to you? Jeremiah was preaching for 23 years in a row, early in the morning, late at night, trying to warn people to change from their evil ways, but nobody was listening. Verse four, it says, and the Lord has sent to you all his servants and prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus is the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against his inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing and perpetual desolation. He continues to talk about the destruction of Israel and down to verse 12, he says this, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. See, Daniel knew that that bondage to, to Babylon was coming from the prophet Jeremiah, but he also knew there was hope at the other end. And sometimes for us, again, we're in the modern day Babylon, whether it's America or any country, the world is under the sway of the devil, is under the sway of sin. And it can seem like, man, this is never gonna end or where is the hope? But something Daniel did is this is gonna be 70 years. And in that day and age, life expectancy, Daniel knew he probably was never gonna leave Babylon. But he also knew that he could take a stand on the word of God and he could be a man of faith and make sure the commandments of God and the truth of God didn't disappear onto the next generation. But he could invest in the next generation of Jews who then would be released from Babylon and go back to Israel to establish again the kingdom of God. And so for us, again, it's not always about what we're seeing or experiencing right now. Um, But what are we investing in the next generation to make sure the truths of God and the men of faith and women of faith do not fall to discouragement of seeing all the bondage and all the sin that we're always surrounded by. But not only was Daniel a man of the word in these prophecies from Leviticus and Jeremiah, but Daniel was also humble. And if you look back to verse eight, that's talking about Daniel, a purpose in his heart to do these things. 
it would have been easy for Daniel to say, you know, enough's enough. We're in Babylon, it's, it's evil, and I'm not gonna eat this meat, and if you make me eat this meat, you can just kill me, and I'm, I'm not gonna do it. That could have been his response to the king, because he's a man of God. But instead, he said, he, it just says that Daniel requested. He just went to the chief of the eunuch and said, you know, this is what, this is what I wanna do, what do you think? And for us, sometimes there can be so much pressure on Christians to like prove God's existence or prove the right way or prove what the truth is. And all of a sudden it can become combative. And we draw this line and we become very unreasonable, unwilling to hear other people out. And all of a sudden we're focused on just being right. And if there's one thing that I would encourage us as a church to take away from this morning, if anything, is God is more important or is more um, concerned about you being righteous than he is you being right. You can have the right opinion and you can know all the right stuff. You can have all the right answers out of the Bible. But 1 Corinthians 13 says without love, we're nothing. He says that you can even be burned as a martyr, um, but without love, it profits you nothing. And so Daniel, he's able to impact Babylon, not just because he's right, not just because he knows the word of God, but because he brought humility and he brought grace and he brought kindness and he brought love with his truth. And so for you and I, as we meet people, especially the people who disagree with us the most, especially the people who persecute us the most, or maybe hate us the most, as John 17 says, what's our response to them? Is it just, oh, they, they don't know what they're doing. They're of the world. They're spiritually blind and we just move on. Or is there an actual genuine concern? Is there actually a genuine love and kindness and grace that we're desiring to minister to them? Now, if you go to James chapter three, there's a very practical scripture that I think could be a tool for us in being in the world, dealing with hard arguments, dealing with bad thinking and bad morality, but how can we do it in a Christ-like way? If you turn to James chapter three, we'll start in verse 13. And he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So it's not always about what you know, but it's about what you do. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. It's a pretty um, sharp scripture when you think about that, that when we are leading with selfish ambition or self-seeking or envy or bitterness, when we're just frustrated and you think you're right and you think you have the wisdom of God, that wisdom's not coming from God, even if it's God's word. But the devil, it says demons, the demonic wisdom is twisting that actually to our own hurt and bringing confusion to everyone around us. And this is never more true than in politics. If you look around how divided our nation is right now, whether we're talking about what is the definition of a man or what is the definition of a woman, things that shouldn't need to be argued, but because people get so heated, people get so angry, all of a sudden, if you're watching Fox News, whatever it is, everyone's confused. And people don't, what, what did we even start talking about in the first place? We're 20 minutes into the argument and nobody even knows what we're talking about because it's wisdom that's led by bitterness, envy, self-seeking, and these things are always gonna to lead to confusion in our hurt, even if we're right, doesn't really matter. But verse 17, he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, to we, um, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality 
and without hypocrisy. So I challenge you guys to memorize this scripture, verse 17 specifically. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And a lot of versions of the Bible without part- or willing to yield also is translated um, reasonable, to be reasonable. And I think that's a great word is you can be right and you can be strong on your convictions. You don't have to back down from what you believe in, what you know is to be true. But are you reasonable? Can you actually listen? Do you actually know what the other person's saying as they're responding to you? Are you actually maybe understanding the, the hurt and the trauma and the pain that's led them to believing the things that they actually believe? And if you say memorizing scripture is hard for you, it's okay. It's not easy for everybody. But I want to challenge you with this is if I asked every one of you what your favorite hobby was or your favorite sports team was or your favorite, whatever it is that you do, you could tell me a lot about it right on the spot for memory. Why? Because you have it memorized and you're excited about it. And the truth is, if you get excited about God's word and God's mission becomes a priority in your life, you can memorize scripture. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy, but whatever that favorite hobby is, you've probably spent a lot of time thinking about it, talking about it, studying it. And the same thing is true with God's word. The more that you care and are, are hungry for the word of God, the more that it will get hidden in your heart. And the more you'll be able to practice pure wisdom instead of earthly wisdom. Second scripture we'll look at in regards to humility is Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Um, verse 14. And he says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing new under the sun. Daniel was in a corrupt um, environment. Jesus was in a corrupt environment. The Philippian church is in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. They're in a corrupt environment and we are today. So this isn't anything new, but how did they shine as lights in the world? How could they be in the world, not of it? It's a super complicated one. They did everything without complaining and disputing. Super complicated, right? No, it's not very complicated, but it's tough. Man, when it's tough not to complain about the government, complain about the economy, complain about gas prices, complain about your kids, complain about your spouse, complain about your work. There's so many things we can be complaining about that all of a sudden we look just like the world. But the Bible's telling us one of the biggest distinguishing factors between a believer and a non-believer should be a lack of complaining and a lack of arguing. And just think about that for a minute. How much complaining and arguing are you confronted with on a daily basis at work or at your home or at the grocery store? I mean, it's all over the place. It's all the time. People are complaining and people are disputing. Imagine if you never complained and you never argued. And again, reasoning with people and sharing truth is different than arguing. But I mean, you would, you would stand out like a sore thumb if we didn't complain and we didn't argue. And that's what I love about the gospel is the gospel and how Jesus calls us to live is rarely complicated, but it's very costly. It's hard. And we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do it. And Jesus promises us 
Just like he's gonna promise Daniel, we're gonna see in a minute, he promises us hope. Not only does he promise us eternal life, but Jesus said that he promised to send us a helper, the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead would come and live inside of us. So yes, on your own, you're gonna complain and you're gonna dispute and we're gonna get prideful. And I, I was convicted in putting this together. I got in an argument two weeks ago on, on a political issue. And as I was studying this, like, man, you know, that probably wasn't the best witness, even though I may have been right. Um, it wasn't the best witness because it's easy, man. It's so easy to get wrapped up into this, but we need the Holy Spirit to keep our hearts soft and to keep us centered in heavenly wisdom. So if you turn to Daniel, we'll wrap up with two more thoughts. Daniel chapter one. Um, I'm gonna read seven, verse 17 again. We'll read through verse 21 to close. He says, as for these young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in the, in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, they served before the king. And all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So last thing I wanna encourage us with is one way you can be in the world, not of it, is actually just being good at what God's called you to do. And that might seem funny. I'm not talking about trying to make a lot of money or being purposely better than other people, but being the best you can be in what God's called you to do is actually very important. That God's given you gifts. He's given you something to steward. And that job could be um, a pastor. It could be a missionary. It could be um, working in a daycare. It could be a, a stay-at-home mom. It could be a doctor. It could be an athletic director. Whatever God's called you to do, part of what Daniel did here is he didn't just gained favor from the king and asked to plant a church in the middle of Babylon, or he didn't get favor from the king and asked to do Sunday sermons. But what he did is he did good at what he was allowed to do. He had a secular job, a very secular job, and he's in the midst of Babylon. But, the, but by Daniel being disciplined and by him being humble and by him not complaining and him probably showing up to work on time, that gave him a platform of influence to those around him. And for us, again, not overcomplicating it, but can we steward well just the place where God's put us and learn from people, learn from your boss, learn from people who've maybe done your job longer than you have, that you can excel in what God's called you to do. You can gain knowledge that you could be a witness by being excellent at whatever job God's called you to. And finally, I just wanna close with all of this pointing back to Christ because no one served people better than Jesus did. And in Philippians 2, it says that he humbled himself as a servant to us. And he didn't do it while we were friends of God, but actually when we were enemies of God. Nobody here loved God first, but God loved you first. Nobody here served Jesus before he died for you, but Jesus died for you so that you could serve him. And so for each one of us, we run into hard relationships and conflict and in a wicked world that we live in, are we gonna to wait to be served? Are we gonna wait till people are reasonable? Or are we gonna pick up our cross like Jesus did and be reasonable first? Are we gonna love first? Are we gonna be kind first? And are we gonna be gracious first?
The last scripture, um, this will be our close, is in Jeremiah 29. And this is a scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11, that is very familiar to many of you, kind of a famous scripture. But um, in context, again, Jeremiah 25 is at the beginning of Daniel 1. Jeremiah 29 is at the end of Daniel 1, beginning of chapter 2, as Daniel was receiving this letter from Jeremiah being encouraged. And I just want to encourage you, when you take the, the, the stand to put your faith in God's word, he will send you encouragement and he will send you truths from people, but he'll also send you truths from the word. He'll send you truth from the Holy Spirit so that you have the endurance to finish the race. Because I'm, I'm sure as Daniel was doing this, it wasn't easy, but I can only imagine how timely this encouragement was when he heard it. So starting in verse four of chapter 29, we'll close with this. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. See, prophets were telling Israel, well, you're not gonna really be here for 70 years. It's not really gonna be that hard. People won't really hate you. Same thing happens today. It's not gonna be that hard to be a Christian. People won't really hate you for being a Christian. You can really be kind of part of the world, kind of a Christian, be pretty cool and still read your Bible. But none of those things are true, that Jesus says they hated him first. And if he lives inside of us and we demonstrate Christ, we're gonna receive the same reaction from the world. But the good part comes in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, after each one of us has finished our life here on earth, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. He'll bring us to his promised land. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you'll seek me and find me and, you, and when you search with, for me with all your heart. So I just want us to be encouraged that while we're in Babylon, while we're in this world, while we're in the United States, have a family, get a house, raise your kids, invest in your job, invest in your community, pray for the welfare of America. All those things are beautiful things, but ultimately realizing this is not our home. Ultimately realizing our goal as Christians is not to be happy, is not to be popular, and ultimately isn't to reform America. I pray that America could return to being a Christian um, country again as its foundation, but that's not promised anywhere in scripture. I hope, I mean, it's great if it does, but ultimately, just like God said to Israel and Babylon, be a light, be the salt of the earth, be the light of the world and trust that this is not our home. And ultimately, if we'll be people of the word, if we'll humble ourselves and we'll take on the example of Jesus Christ, um, God will move more powerfully um, than we could ever imagine. So I wanna pray for us and ask the worship team um, to come back up. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, and I thank you that um, you're not calling us to be popular. You're not calling us to be perfect and you're not calling us um, to be cool according to the word, world. 
Lord, but you're calling us to be humble, Father, and you're calling us to rely on you, Jesus, because apart from you, we can be, do nothing. Lord, apart from you, we're prideful and we're angry and we're not quick to listen and we have earthly wisdom all the time, Jesus. So I just pray that we could humble ourselves, we could turn from our sin, Lord, and that we could be filled with your Holy Spirit to take on your example. God, and I just thank you for Mitchell Breen Church, Lord, and the opportunity um, you've given Sarah and I to be here um, with this group of people, Lord. And I know you're raising up many disciples, many men and women um, to be a light in this city, Father. And I just pray that from this little place in Mitchell, God, that we could truly be a light um, in a city on a, on a hill, Lord, that we could truly make an impact not only in the panhandle and in, in Nebraska, Lord, but we could make an impact on this country and seek the welfare of the country that you've placed us. God, so we thank you, we love you, and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.